You honestly said jings. You didn't even swear. Well, no, I'm I'm trying, to, I'm trying to keep it clean in case Thomas uses any of this for the actual <laughs> broadcast, so we can get the the, the full rating in uh, iTunes without the explicit warnings. You know, you don't want to say anything uh, controversial. Oh. That, you know, mm-hmm. America's so, ass is gone. Good morning, Vietnam. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Mr. Beck. Who could have used someone like you on my world? New world? Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do, and you're coming with us. There's gotta be someone else you can use. Where about Thor? Off world. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider Man. Bitch, please, you've been to space. Evening all and welcome to the episode four of the Movie Scramble podcast. I am joined by Mary. I'm back. Who's back from her holidays and if you could see her just now, you see how tan she is. <laughs> I think she's been lying in the sun. Do you know, I've got three freckles on my left shoulder and I think that's all I've got to show for this holiday. John, as usual, you're trying to hide in the shadows um, like Nosferatu. Yeah, I swear I do my best work, obviously, isn't it? How are you? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. And how are you, Thomas? How are you this fine, sunny evening? Yep, I'm not too bad. Look, I was just sent to you guys before we started recording. I finish up tomorrow for two and a half weeks. Dick. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's lovely, Mary. I was afraid that she says dick and the first thing you think is nice, but hey, I don't think... <laughs> So we are going to be reviewing Spider-Man Far From Home, directed by John Watts, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the fifth film with Tom Holland as Spider-Man. Yeah, that sounds a bit right. Yeah, I think so. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. This sees a story of, it's set after Endgame, so we are going to be spoiling Endgame. If you've not seen it, well, tough. But (laughs) we're not going to spoil Spider-Man for you because we're nice that way, and we do want people to go and see it. Let's say set after the end game, people have came back after Fantasy Snap, which has now been called in the news as the blip, or especially in uh, Spider-Man school. But the focus of the plot is Spider-Man goes on vac- a European vacation with his school, and the world's in danger from these big evil villains called Elementals that destroyed a mysterious man called Mysterio's homeworld. Now, is Spider-Man up to the task of fighting these otherworldly beings, when, let's be honest, he's not really the most powerful Avenger, but with half of them dead, sorry, spoiler, <laughs> and the other half not in the film, can he do it? First of first things first, John, did you enjoy the film? Yes, I did, with uh, slight reservations. I was always of the impression that the Spider-Man films were good, especially the last one, I thought Homecoming was excellent, but... It seems to be always, always smaller scale. You always find that uh, with the MCU films, the films that come after the Avengers films are always smaller films. So, like, for instance, uh, after 
the first Avengers movie, Avengers Assemble, we had Iron Man 3, which was a much lower key Iron Man. There wasn't sort of global stakes in that. Well, slightly less global stakes. And after Ultron uh, and after Infinity War, we had the Ant-Man movies, which were very contained within very short stories and very sort of small, sort of San Francisco-based, that kind of thing. So I wasn't expecting this to be a massive big film. And, and that kind of term I was pleasantly surprised because it was... It was good. It was very good. But I felt there might have been something missing from it, but I'm not quite sure what. I'm still kind of trying to digest what I thought it was. But I thought it was an excellent entry into the MCU. And there are clear ways how this is going to influence how they go forward. So it was excellent as a standalone movie, but it was also excellent in terms of taking it forward into phase four as well. Yeah, do you know, I really enjoyed it. I think... Tom Holland's doing a really great job of capturing the Peter Parker side of Spider-Man, which I think is always nice when there's that kind of human element of it as well, because as much as I love a sort of popcorn blockbuster, I'm not actually a big fan of the huge big set pieces in in Marvel. I prefer the sort of character-driven side of things. I'm really enjoying what he's doing with Peter Parker, you know, somebody who is kind of forced into this group of Avengers, but ultimately he's still like a 16-year-old high school student and he doesn't want the responsibility of saving the world on his shoulders. He just wants to, you know, go on a school trip and try and get a girlfriend. And I quite like that just juxtaposition. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal's having a great old time playing Mysterio um, with his excellent hair and really good cape swishing. Yeah, I thought Jake Gyllenhaal was fantastic in the movie. Um, really kind of hamming it up in a way we don't really see him do often. You know, he's always quite intense and serious in a lot of his roles and it was just really nice to see him kind of let loose and have this kind of fun side to him. Overall, as a film, I, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it a lot more in the second half. I did the first half. I thought the CGI was quite questionable during some of the set pieces early on. Yeah, um, with the elementals in particular, I was kind yeah, of like, whoa, this it, is ropey. Especially yeah. in Venice. And I'm like, guys, come on, how many Marvel films have you got under your belt now? You know, how much money do you have? There's no excuse for this. Overall, I thought it was great. I maybe enjoyed it the most out of the Spider-Man films, uh, of, the, of the new ones, I should say, because it was free from any Avengers baggage. And I loved Homecoming, don't get me wrong. And it was a great interpret, it's a great incarnation. But the character, I think Tom Holland, as much as I love Tobey Maguire, his movies, Spider-Man 2 in particular, Tom Holland has just nailed the role for me completely. As you were saying, Mary's kind of, he's that, he encapsulates that young boy who's found, who's stumbled upon being a superhero. And he's like, I still like to go to school and, you know, get the girl and, you know, I'm not interested in saving the world. Yeah, and I think particularly in this film, obviously with the loss of Tony Stark, there's he does feel that sort of rudderless way and you can really sense that like he 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 doesn't want to be dragged into this even more now that he doesn't have somebody telling him you know this is what you should be doing or this is how you get better at things you know he he does have that kind of lost lamb look about him which is to be fair is Tom Holland in general because he seems a bit kind of dopey and silly in real life but I know I really enjoyed it I I didn't like it as much as his homecoming because I felt at times there was a little bit of sort of you know jumping about from place to place and it never really settled in to a sort of not a coherent story because it is very coherent but I just felt like there was a lot of jumping around and I get that because obviously they were on a European school trip but even that felt like a sort of twee kind of plot thing oh we'll just go on a science field trip to Europe and that was that kind of generic sort of there was 
sometimes it, it felt a bit rudderless itself but I did enjoy it as a, as a piece of cinema I really enjoyed it and as you say without kind of any Avengers baggage attached to it yeah I think I saw something on uh, Twitter calling it uh, Spider-Man's entry to the MCEU <laughs> Uh, very clever, very clever <laughs> indeed. I, I like the fact that they use these locations without actually blowing up too many of them. That's what usually happens with these. You end up with uh, like the Houses of Parliament blowing up, or well, that's a classic. Yeah, yeah, you know. And when they were talking about like uh, they were meant to be going to Paris at one point and going to the Eiffel Tower, and uh, I thought, oh no, what are they going to do on top of this? You know, but um, it, it managed to avoid it without uh, sort of using. Uh, devices that they we're all very familiar with, unfortunately. Um, I liked the idea of the Mysterio character because he was like a, almost like a, a substitute for Iron Man in the way that you, you're talking about how um, he seems a bit lost and he, he's, he's a bit rudderless, doesn't know what to do with himself, and he looks up to anybody who's like a fully grown adult, apart from Nick Fury, who mm-hmm. obviously was just trying to ghost for most of the film. The, the character Mysterio seemed to be this rounded character who obviously had a bit of personal baggage and everything but it was someone he could relate to and someone he could say well yeah I could learn a bit from him it's almost like another substitute father someone that's obviously missing from uh, the Peter Parker Parker character anyway that there is no father figure around he could certainly learn some great hairdressing trips tips sorry from me Jake Hall and Missy you're obsessed with this man's hair honestly like I did not anticipate this hair. It was luxurious. I think it was like my favourite part of the film was every time he moved, I was like, wow, look at it, just bristling. But no, as we've said, it was good to see him sort of do something a little less serious. Like he's clearly enjoying the role and kind of having fun with it. And when him and Tom Holland obviously having conversations together, there's a nice chemistry there that, as you say, it's, you know, if they'd had nobody in there at all I think it would have been really lacking because obviously the whole idea was that Stark was going to take Spider-Man under his wing so I think to have nobody fill that void would have made the film really lacking but I like their relationship As we were saying as well I had very that didn't have a lot of Avengers baggage you know it kind of was always a stand alone and Homecoming as a standalone Spider-Man film it did feature Tony Stark heavily mm-hmm. and as Iron Man it does have Nick Fury in this and he plays quite a prominent role no, like I think it was quite a nice sort of continuation. Like the reason Fury is there, obviously, is because he's desperate for somebody that has some sort of connection with the Avengers to try and help with the pursuit of these elementals. So it did feel like a really natural reason for him to be there. It wasn't just like, oh, we'll shove, you know, Captain Marvel in or something because she happened to be in uh, Queens at the time or whatever. Like it, it was a really natural reason for him to, to be there. It's an interesting thing as well regarding you mentioning Queens there. Are all the Marvel superheroes based in? Or around New York? There's a couple of them. I don't think they're all based there. Obviously, there's a couple of West Coast ones and things like that as well. But yeah, there are a few. Sorry, uh, to be based there. Yeah. Yeah, you Daredevil. Punisher. Spider Man. Yeah, yeah. Iron Man. Yeah. You know, it's like, it seems like either New York's the most dodgiest place to go to in the Marvel Universe or the safest. <laughs> I did like a little reference to the comics with the multiverse when Mysterio referred to his Earth has been uh, to Spider Man's Earth has been six one six. The whole idea of the multiverse, I think that's the sort of major point of how it's going to move forward as well. Because if you think about it, they've now 
uh, acquired all of the Fox based superheroes. So mm-hmm. you've got the likes of all the X Men and Deadpool and Fantastic Four. And there's there would have been no easy way to introduce them without, you know, like sort of major questions being asked, like, well, where the hell have you been while the Earth has been in trouble for the last uh, four or five years? You know, we've had all these people attacking us. What have you been doing? You know, have you been running a school? You know, so this is a way to introduce uh, X-Men and especially Fantastic Four, I think, uh, into this universe. Fantastic Four doesn't thrill me. I, I, but the thing of the Fantastic Four is, though, is they're most likely going to reboot it. Yes, I think so. Yeah, there's no way they're going to continue with the last cast, surely, after that bombing so badly. Well, they obviously can't continue with the, the Chris Evans cast. Um, but I actually thought they were maybe going to try and continue with the Michael B. Jordan attempt at things. I know it did really badly, but I thought maybe if they sort of reworked it into this idea of the multiverse, they would maybe keep with that cast. Yeah, but was he not also going on? Oh, of course, they can't do that either. You know? oh. So, But they could, to be fair, if they go to the multiverse... Half Chris Evans come back as Johnny Blaze, a uh, Johnny Storm, sorry, and people ask him questions like, "Hmm, you look familiar," and they pretend <laughs> they shouldn't do it. Now, I don't want to spoil the end credit scenes. Nope. Do you think it's worth staying for though for people watching? I personally thought both of them were worth staying for. Oh yeah, definitely. Like as I said in the review that I wrote, which is non-spoilery, I think. Um, I kind of didn't know where this film was going, as as, as I've said, obviously, uh, on here as well. It felt a bit rudderless at times. And actually, one of the end credit sequences, which I won't get into, made me actually go, oh, this is where this is going. So I felt like it gave me a little bit of um, clarity because up until that point, yeah, it was an enjoyable, you know, sort of big blockbuster picture. But I didn't really feel like it was actually contributing anything to the canon other than just the enjoyability factor. But one of the end credit sequences made me go, okay, this is where you guys are going with this. That's cool. And I thought the secondary characters in Far From Home are absolutely brilliant. His classmates, the teacher and all that, they added a real good comic factor to the film that didn't make it ridiculous. It was a right level of humour. And they just added, these friends just acted like how kids do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what's important is that it's, and that's what really stood out for me actually is that, you know, the character of Peter Parker and his friends are not reciting lines like that it's a script that's been written by adults. They just sound like teenagers. And that's, you know, I really like the character driven stuff. And, it, you know, they were just, you know, goofy school kids, like, you know, exactly what you were like at 16. You know, you're desperate for, you know, I kissed a girl or we held hands or whatever. And I really like that element of it. I think they've captured that side really, really well. Um, as much as the big set pieces, etc., are entertaining, but I actually like the kind of gawky teenager side of it more, if that makes sense. I'm not saying I'm excited and can't wait for the next Spider-Man, but I definitely think that um, it, they've taken it in a more sort of interesting turn than I anticipated. Flash Thompson, to me, has always been the kind of jock bully, and MJ has always been kind of the homecoming queen mm-hmm. type thing. And this story, this version of Spider-Man, doesn't do either of that. Flash Thompson, yeah, he's a bit of a bully, but he's a bit of a, a loser bully. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, MJ, who's also not Mary Jane this time. Forgive me if I mispronounced that actress's name, Zendaya. Yep. Yeah. She is fantastic in the role. And her and Tom Holland have got a really good chemistry. 
oh yeah, she's like effortlessly sort of cool and aloof, isn't she? She's, you know, your typical sort of grungy teenage girl who's just, you know, radical in her thoughts about everything. And even like at one point during the film, he says to her, you know, um, you look really pretty tonight. And she's like, so does that mean I have value? Like, I just love this ass. <laughs> I love it. Love yeah. it. It's a fact as well, I mean, like you're saying, like she's fully effortless or cool, but only in regards to the people she hangs about with as friends. If she was in the school, she wouldn't be the cool kid. She's only the cool kid compared to these utter losers. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Do you know, it was so funny. I saw it was a thing on Twitter the other day. And it was like, you know, Tom Holland as Spider-Man. And it was a picture of him at a press conference. And he was just like playing with a mic. And next thing, the full thing had come apart in his hands. And he was just like looking around, absolutely bewildered, and trying to sort of ram this all back together. And I was like, I think he has just morphed completely into Peter Parker. I love it. Love it. Well, we know he's got previous for uh, giving spoils of age on interviews. I think they gave, was it, they gave him, is this right, something like less than five pages of script for Endgame and that was it. Like literally just the dialogue he was saying because they couldn't trust him with anything else. Like so no context for the dialogue he was saying, just the lines, that was it. Because they just knew that he was going to go and blab on a press tour. You can imagine him watching the film for the first time in the premiere and it's like, oh my god, on your sticks! <laughs> He's got the hammer! Now it all makes sense, what I was saying. <laughs> Funny enough, you said that a partner of Robert Downey Jr. was one of the few actors to read the entire script. I mean, I think that's only fair. I think that's quite a, a nice touch, actually, to, to have that. Um, I think they didn't give Mark Ruffalo the full strip, uh, script as well, because he can't be trusted either. <laughs> He's a, a blabbermouth. <laughs> President just uh, men in black him after the film was finished. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, that's funny. John, any more thoughts on Spider-Man? No, just um, it was a particularly good film and I, I I look forward to the next one, especially given the first post-trailer, uh, first post-credit scene, I should say. Um, I thought that kind of set things up really nicely for future installments. It yeah. takes in a slightly different direction as well, which I thought, oh, yeah, interesting, good. And from a non-plot point of view, it gave you a nice little surprise. I was like, ooh, interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> Mary? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, as sort of big showy blockbusters go, it's good, but it also feels nice and contained, and there's a lot of really lovely character development going on, and definitely say for the post-credits, um, it's it's about to get exciting, I think. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh didn't have the kind of emotional roller coaster of Endgame. Nothing has gone there. As a follow up to Endgame, it was a really fun, enjoyable, light hearted movie. It's a recommended for me. Oh, recommended for me, absolutely. Oh yeah. I would go I would go along with you you two, yes, definitely. Yes. I would happily go and see it again. I thought it was just a Really nice superhero film. Your friend will neighbor Spider Man. Sorry, when John said he would go along with you two, I was like, oh, are we going on like a movie scramble? So I watch it together. Maybe. When Fury asked me to come up here and see how you were doing. He just he felt bad about snapping at you. Really? You guys do have sarcasm on this earth, right? <laughs> Well, Spider-Man uh, is no stranger to being rebooted, let's be honest. So, 
Next topic, we've been discussed. This has been discussing remakes, reboots, reimaginings, re whatever you want to call something these days to avoid calling an actual remake because it's an ugly word. There's <laughs> some good ones though. And I've been asking our people on social media and yourselves to come up with three of your favourite re somethings. Okay, John, are you wanting to go first or? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, m- my first one is the. The, the reboot of the Planet of the Apes franchise from 2011. You absolute bastard. Thank you very that much. That was my first choice. Really okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, after the, the, the debacle that was the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, which was back in 2001, there didn't seem to be much life left in uh, Planet of the Apes, but uh, they, they decided to have another punt at it in 2011 with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. It was directed by Rupert Wyatt, an English director, with James Franco, Andy Serkis, John Lithgow, Terry Notary, and Brian Cox as the evil bad guy. Always an evil Scotsman, that's what you like. Eh? We'll go <laughs> into more evil Scotsman later, of course. <laughs> um, it it came as a total surprise because uh, it used um, CGI and especially motion capture in a way that hadn't really been done uh, since the likes of Avatar. It didn't have the same; it hadn't the same impact since then. It brought to life uh, the character of Caesar in a way that had never really been seen. It was so much expression uh, as part of, like, just just being there and sitting there, and you, you saw this. Uh, chimpanzee with the fur flowing and the uh, the eyes. The eyes were the kind of thing it makes. That's always your uh, your entrance into the uh, the uncanny valley when you see a character, and it's always the eyes that they just couldn't quite get right. And they've got it spot on there. It's just such a good use of uh, the technology. But you've also got uh, such a good performance by Andy Circus as Caesar. Now the, the story itself uh, very cleverly took things back, basically rebooted the entire series, whereas uh, with the old Planet of the Apes films, they they had an initial idea for film, which was based on a, a book, a French author whose name I can't remember just now. But in order to continue the series, they had to kind of retool it and they used time travelling and things like that. This just ignores all of that. It just This starts with Caesar actually becoming uh, the intelligent ape that he is um, and how that all came about now I won't spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen it but it's done in such a way that it's it's almost like a family drama in places because of uh, the James Franco and John Lithgow uh, interactions John Lithgow is uh, James Franco's father and uh, they've come up with a research for uh, brain illnesses and aging and stuff like that and obviously by feeding um, Caesar the medication and to test it because of the closest to humans things start to happen and Caesar becomes intelligent, as intelligent or even more intelligent than the, his human captors. It's just, it's a fantastic film. It's so beautifully paced. From previous Planet of the Apes films, you, you're always expecting set pieces. Now, you get one of those at the end. It is in an iconic location. It's on the uh, Golden Great Bridge. But the the story itself is more drama based it's more it's almost a, a human drama if you like but obviously with uh, there's involvement in a couple of the apes as well and obviously this then led on to uh, the 
the films after that, um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of Apes, which expanded the whole thing and made it bigger and uh, came to a very nice conclusion just the other year there. So, yeah, I think that probably qualifies as a reboot. Yeah, brilliantly said. I mean, I, I agree with you 100% as well. I find that entire trilogy of movies are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, especially the first and last one. I enjoyed the second one as well, but the first one just for you see that the drama element to it, it was so emotional. And yeah. the last one tied it up nicely. And yeah. Good shout. Good choice. All right. Yeah, Cheers. no, I mean that's the first time I've ever felt like genuine sympathy for a monkey, essentially. Like usually they're used in a sort of comedic way. In in films that are like they're essentially just a circus act, aren't they? Usually in, in, in cinema when they appear as characters. Um so to actually have as you say, this well thought out, almost like family drama was no excellent. Love love that trilogy. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that, Mary. No, that's okay. It's just because it's the only trilogy or sort of franchise, maybe in recent times, that I remember being so buzzing for each instalment. Like I could not wait to see each film, and I never thought I'd say that because monkeys do kind of freak me out slightly. But no, they were great, absolutely great. Um, I'm going to cheat slightly with mine. Because it's a reboot, but it was a reboot for Netflix. So my choice is The Punisher, which started life out in 2004. A film with Thomas Jane as The Punisher and also starring um, John Travolta, the man of many wigs. Um, And that was pretty much critically panned. I don't think it made too much money and it just wasn't. um, I've just looked at that there. It's sitting at 29% in Rotten Toms if you buy into that sort of thing. and it just really wasn't what people were looking for in terms of the character. And when Netflix picked it up and cast John Bernthal, um, for me, they absolutely hit it out the park. Um, Bernthal is a tremendous um, Frank Castle um, or Castiglione or The Punisher, whatever you want to call him. And I think that it's one of the kind of more brave Marvel series in the sense that it's so dark and it's so violent and he's this sort of you know taciturn sort of central hero and you're getting to see little clips of why his life the way it why it's turned out the way it is through flashbacks or night terrors and they sort of build in the fact that this is operating in the same universe as, as Daredevil and Jessica Jones um I just absolutely loved it I get totally swept up in the series and again I, I couldn't wait to binge on them um on Netflix I think um John Bernthal's done a tremendous job of capturing somebody who is you know a very flawed human and somebody who is also a kind of you know hero or anti-hero whatever you want to call it um I loved the series and I absolutely loved what he did with the character and it's proof that it can be done you can do superheroes but you can do them really gritty and violent and sort of visceral in their approach you know the body count must be absolutely huge for the Punisher series for both of them and it's it's just sad that it might disappear because of the whole Disney Plus thing because I actually really really enjoyed them as a series. I actually had on my short list the Thomas Jane Punisher. Did you? Yeah. It was not it's not I didn't make my final list, mind you. Um it was my short list. The first Punisher film I believe was Dolph Lundgren. Wasn't a great fan of it, but I read I did really enjoy the Thomas Jane when it was critically panned didn't do too well. It wasn't like an El Superior film at the time, because it was really violent. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is perhaps why it didn't do so well because this is why I always say that Timothy Dalton is the greatest James Bond of all time he was just misunderstood because he took the franchise in a sort of darker um, path or whatever but you know I absolutely I just have mad love for um, Johnny Bernthal's Punisher I think he is he, he always has this really wounded look about him throughout the series, even when he's, you know, cracking heads or, you know, shooting through uh, windows or jumping out of, you know, however many story buildings. He just has a really wounded look about him as if I don't want to be doing this, but he's sort of burdened with his own capacity to beat the shit out of folk. <laughs> he's just tired rage and the whole way through it. And for years I pined after a Thomas Jane sequel. Until John Berenfall turned the came along, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm happy with, with this. Yeah, <laughs> I would recommend for anybody that does like the Punisher, just in general, is a short film called Dirty Laundry, which stars Thomas Jane and Ron Perlman. Oh, ten minutes long. It's brilliant. I've seen it. It's on YouTube. It's really good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's your homework, maybe. That's my that's my homework. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm going to go about kind of left field with my choices then. It's not as highbrow. Uh, <laughs> oh God, what's coming? <laughs> a little shop of horrors. Is that a reboot? It's a remake. Yeah, directed by Frank Cause in 1986. It was the original movie was in 1960, I believe, by Roger Corman, and it wasn't a musical. The musical was an off-Broadway production that was inspired by the film, and then the remake took its influence from the musical. I did not know this. The original film's also known for having a cameo by Jack Nicholson, who plays the part of the, I believe he plays the part of the patient going to the dentist that Bill Murray went and played in the remake with mm-hmm. Steve Martin's the dentist. I grew up watching this film. I absolutely <laughs> love it. It's just total cheese. The songs are memorable. Rick Moranis is, is great in it. Uh, Steve Martin steals the show as the cool, arrogant, and cocky dentist. <laughs> the, the special effects are brilliant. Big puppets and stuff. The plan eating people. That Seymour to itself. Really, really funny. Total timeless. I just, I just absolutely love the film. And if you go back and watch the original, you'll be disappointed if you're expecting anything similar. Like I say, it's based more off the musical that was based off the original film. Mm-hmm. The original film is still a comedy as well. This does take it a bit far. It's off the wall, totally madcap. And I think even a lot of the effects, because it's all puppetry and stuff, Frank Cos, obviously, very well known. It stands up today. I did not know that was a remake. You have a reboot, sorry. You have genuinely surprised me with that. I did not know that at all. John knew. I know John knew. I did know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've, actually got, I've got the. I've got the the original DVD somewhere as well, the Roger I, Corman version. I bet which, you're Jack right. His name in the front cover. Yes, uh, he's like the main star. <laughs> <laughs> he's in there for like two minutes. Yep. It was one of these DVDs, you know how you got like three um, movies in a DVD, the, the really rubbish quality ones, like the Sherlock Holmes ones. It was yeah. it was in a pack of them and it was <laughs> sort of meant to be horror films. No, I've got special affection for... Uh, Little Shop of Horrors because my son was in a school production of it a couple of years ago and he was the voice of the plant and uh, (laughs) he did his best Levi Stubbs impersonation and he was 
absolutely fantastic. You would not know it was this sort of sort of deep southern singing voice that he had, and he was just ace. It was really, really good, but obviously wasn't quite in the same league as Levi Stubbs, but still, yeah, really enjoyed it. And because of that, just loved it anyway, but just it's, it added an extra layer to it for me as well. So, yeah, excellent choice. Oh, yeah, it's one of those big over-the-top camp, throw everything at it type of things along the sort of lines of maybe Rocky Horror that just absolutely love. So, yeah, yeah excellent choice. It's got good reviews of it, again, if we're looking at uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but it wasn't the big, it wasn't that big box office success. It got more of a cult following. And when you look at it, it as one of those films, it's, it's got cult written all over it. Yeah, it's so pulpy. It's just, it's, yeah, it's made for sort of dressing up screenings, isn't it? It's that sort of film. And the thing I think is interesting about it as well, as much as like the production of it will have dated, the f- I don't think the film itself is really dated. It could be set at any point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not got an eighties feel to it. I mean, you know, it doesn't. You don't come away from thinking that's really eighties and like of its time. Yeah, uh, definitely not. I think it's one of those ones that, as you say, it could be set in any era. John, okay, uh, my second choice uh, is Mission Impossible. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Um, obviously, originally it was a TV series that ran for maybe three, four years back in the late sixties, <laughs> with the likes of Martin Landau and Barbara Bach, and uh, the the tape recorders that self destructed after five seconds, and it gained a sort of cult following because it got shown in television. I mean. Uh, like in the seventies and eighties, it was on the TV all the time. So even though there wasn't that many episodes of it, it was out there and everybody kind of knew about it. For years and years, people were trying to get uh, a film version of it made, and it took Tom Cruise in the, the mid nineties to actually uh, really get it together. He just started a production company, and he wanted a sort of a showcase to sort of show off his talents and sort of launched his production company and they picked up on the Mission Impossible franchise. So drafted in Brian De Palma, a director who has worked with the probably some of the best out there in, in the business in terms of actors across the years. He's done so much stuff. Brought him in, brought in John Voight, Emmanuel Bert, Jean Reno and Ving Rames. Um Story itself is... Uh, introducing the character of Ethan Hunt, who wasn't one of the original members of the the team. It was uh, Jim Phelps was the main uh, sort of guy originally. So it's Ethan Hunt and his team. Uh, they're on a mission, goes wrong. Basically, pretty much all the team gets killed and he gets blamed because he's the only one left and he has to try and put together a wee special team of his own and figure things out. Now, it was... it's such a big deal this film because everybody remembers it if you talk about Mission Impossible the first thing everybody thinks about is the scene where he's on the wires it's iconic now, it's it's gone to that sort of level and it basically that, that film launched a franchise which is still going today if you think about it that was 1996 so uh, that's what 23 years yeah. the, the film's been gone and they've only just recently announced that there's going to be another two films as well Obviously, they've they've gone on bigger and better since then. The first four or five films had different directors, so there was different styles with all of the films. They, they were always taking risks, trying to push the boundaries and make it a spectacle. And uh, I just think it's a perfect example of what a blockbuster should be like because each and every one of them has a story to them as well. It's not just based on going from one stunt to another. 
I totally agree. It's a really strong franchise. It's something that you think, yeah, it's going to be a bit sequel to and kind of peter out, but no, it just kind of went from strength to strength, arguably. It's not my favourite one, but the last one has got a good case for being the best in the best in the series. For me, the first one's probably still the best. Mm. I love my, the first one. My favourite's the third one, the J.J. Abrams one. Very underrated. Very underrated yeah, one. I... I think that's a fantastic movie. I think it, it, it's not the, the biggest in terms of, you know, he's, he's not like uh, like dropping out from space or anything like that, you know, or it uh, does obviously sort of glide between two buildings in this one, but it's as probably, it's my favourite for a number of reasons, just uh, it's the best bad guy in it with Philip Seymour Hoffman and everything, but you wouldn't have got there unless you had this first film and the success of it. And the first one as well, and big massive spoiler for everybody. <laughs> Stop listening, cool. Jim Phelps is the bad guy. That uh, caused a lot of yeah. grief at the time with sort of original fans of the, the film because they're saying, how can he be the bad guy? There was also an accusation at the time that uh, people couldn't understand the plot, which I, I, I found really difficult to believe because mm-hmm. it seemed fairly straightforward, but it was all about uh, the knock list and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And people were saying, no, I know, it was, it was a bit too convoluted for me. And was going, oh dear. This is why we have dumb cinema <laughs> and scenes that don't last for more than 90 seconds. John, I'm just furious with you because you have denied me the opportunity to talk about Henry Cavill's moustache. <laughs> I am by no means a Tom Cruise lover. I think his personal life is extremely questionable. I can't stop myself from watching the Mission Impossible films. They're very, very enjoyable. Like If you want to go and see just pure spectacle cinema, then you can't get much better than this franchise. Hey, Mary, your second choice? Um, okay, so I am going to go with the Daniel Craig reboot of the James Bond franchise. And the reason that I love this so much is for um, quite a few reasons. As I said earlier, Timothy Dalton is my favourite James Bond. And he is so because I think it's a really dark and brooding um, and very violent uh, type of Bond, exactly as Fleming described in the novels. And yes, I am one of those people that will complain if it's not as good as the book. So it all got a bit silly with Pierce Brosnan, like the exploding pens and the cars across the ice and the nonsense, uh, just just general, like, I mean, Christmas Jones is one of the, uh, just crap, right? I, I hate the Pierce Brosnan era. And then there was a break, a much needed break. And then they said Daniel Craig was going to be the new James Bond and everyone was totally losing their shit because he had blonde hair. And I'm like, I don't care what colour of hair he has. I just need this to be as dark as the Dalton films. So when I went to see Casino Royale at the cinema, from the minute that started, and, you know, obviously flashes back to before he became, you know, a double O, and then the title sequence started and it was beautiful and old fashioned and you've got the Chris Cornell song going over the title sequence. I was like, this is what Bond should be like as far as I'm concerned. And the whole the whole film is just fantastic. Mads Mikkelsen, my God, he was the villain that that franchise needed to kickstart itself again. You know, the whole weeping blood, the sheafrit, just absolutely fantastic. And I think that apart from, I mean, Quantum of Solace and Spectre, I'm going to argue were the weaker additions to the, the Daniel Craig um, era. But I think what he's done with the character, um, the Sam Mendes directed films as well, I've really enjoyed this sort of back to kind of, you know, 
nasty, visceral, really violent Bond. Because ultimately, Bond's not a poster boy. He's not a nice guy. He's paid to do just exactly what the bad guys are doing, but he's doing it for the British, so that must make him a good guy. And I like the way that Daniel Craig plays that. He's quite an ambiguous character, I think, under Craig. And obviously, they've seen some sort of admin changes in like actual headquarters in terms of you know the character of Q and the character of M. But I just... I'm a, I'm one of the few people that's probably quite excited about the the next um, instalment. Bond is something that's sort of intrinsically part of my childhood. My dad does categorically the worst Roger Moore impression of all time, and it's just something that's just part of like you know my childhood and growing up. And Daniel Craig for me just smashed it. I love love his uh, appearances as Bond. Yep, can only agree with you on that. Um, it was actually on my shortlist, so you've just got me back for, okay. <laughs> uh, for doing part of them, so thanks for that. I loved it right from the very start. I thought that the opening sequence where he's fighting in the bathroom yeah. uh, with the, the guy, is, and, and that's just that's just crazy because it's just it's completely full on, and like there's there's porcelain flying everywhere, and it looks really harrowing, and you're yeah. thinking this is different. This is something else entirely. And of course, that sets out his, his double O credentials as well. That's what he's, how he comes across. And then you've got the torture scene about two thirds of the way through the Again, film. Again, I don't get the controversy sounding that. It's, you know, it's, it's as written and, you know, he gets to deliver that cracking line of you get yeah. you, everyone will know that I died with you scratching my balls. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Like, Bond should be that shocking it should be you know as you say there's the opening sequence you know with the um the fight in the the bathroom that's what i want from my bond i want somebody who's you know a risk taker and somebody who's every bit as bad as the so-called villain of the piece and i thought the torture scene was intense i you know it wasn't quite as homoerotic as the the scene between daniel craig and javier bardem i did enjoy that thigh stroking it was quite sensual in the in Skyfall, but you know, as as far as sort of you know, giving a reboot a kick, a, sorry, a franchise a kick up the ass, I don't think you can do too much better than Daniel Craig breathing new life into to Bond. Yeah, like M said, uh, you're a blunt instrument. So there was nothing suave. There was there was nothing. Oh, well, the perfect example is where he's he orders a martini, martini, and he says, you know, would you like it shaken or stirred? And he says, does it look as if I care? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And that was quite nice because, and I know that Bond is sort of famous for all these tropes and these sort of catchphrases, but I like the sort of stripping back of that. And that's why I'm kind of sceptical about the the future casting of Bond because I don't want somebody who is, you know, a pretty boy and suave and, you know, sort of almost harking back to that sort of, you know, Roger Moore type rendition of Bond. I want somebody who is credible with their fists. Yeah, definitely. Not that Timothy Dalton isn't gorgeous, obviously. <laughs> Simi, choice number two. Now I'm getting nervous because I don't have a massive short list and I'm trying to pick something that I think one of you will have. <laughs> that's, that's just cruel thinking that way. I know, but I'm going to have to go with a fistful of dollars. Oh, nice choice. Yeah, very good. Directed, of course, by Sergio Leone. It stars Clint Eastwood as The Man With No Name, in which would be the first of Leone's A Man With No Name trilogy. The movie is based on Yojimbo by Akira Kurosawa. 
And it's, let's be honest, is there more, is there more iconic Clint Eastwood role than this character? Probably not, no. It just oozes cute. Now, I actually seen you Jimbo first, and I absolutely loved it. The, the, the plot is almost like a trope now, you know, of the kind of the one wolf playing the two sides against each other for the good of the townspeople. It's been done to death so many times. It's actually even remade with Bruce Willis as Last Man Standing. Sergio Leone takes an already fantastic and classic film and somehow manages to create an even more iconic and classic movie. Everything about it, like I say, is just iconic. It's cool. It just drips with charisma. And Clint Eastwood, just the whole time he's on the screen, you're just glued to him. The magnetism he's got. And it's such a simple plot. Such a straightforward story. And as Westerns, you know, has that trilogy ever really been beaten? Oh, it's got to be one of the most iconic sort of, there's so many um, images that stand out from that that are just so intri- like almost as genre defining as it were, because they're just everything that um, Leone creates in that film is so intrinsically linked with the Western itself. Yeah, I thought it was a f- fantastic movie. Just such a interesting premise to begin with. And then the way that they executed it, all these spaghetti Westerns were obviously made on very limited budgets. And just some of the stories behind the the things that they did in order to get them made and everything. Like, uh, I don't think this, this one, I think it was The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. The, there was a big scene in a graveyard. They actually dug a graveyard with 5,000 graves in it uh, for, just for the film. There's a whole there's a documentary about it called uh, Sad Hill on Earth, oh. which is just amazing. It's about these guys who uh, went out and found the site of uh, the graveyard. It's a big circular graveyard and there's a big bit in the middle where the three sort of face off at the end. And they, they found this and they, they restored it and uh, started showing films there and people were coming along sort of pilgrimages and all this and that sort oh, of stuff. So it's got true. it's got a life beyond uh, just the film. The films are so appreciated. And obviously that trilogy, I think if, if we ever do sort of a, a topic of trilogies, I think we're just going to have to exclude that one because I think it would be in all of our lists. It wouldn't be my list, to be fair. No? No, do you know why? Too long. I've never seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, man. <laughs> right, you have homework. <laughs> I've seen uh, the first two, but I've, n- I've never seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Red pen, see me after class. Yeah. <laughs> right, John, okay. piss all over my dreams once more. Go for it. My third choice is Star Trek from 2009. Uh, the J.J. Abrams uh, reboot of the whole space saga, which has obviously been on television and uh, has been itself uh, rebooted and retooled for the next generation in Deep Space Nine. It was one that there had been 10 films of varying quality up to that point, and they've been getting progressively worse since about the, the fourth one. And it looked as if it was dead in his feet, basically. J.J. Uh, Abrams came along, uh, completely redid it, told it from the perspective of actually being in a, an alternate universe, really. It's not the the start. So they can do whatever the hell they want, basically. So you've got Chris Pine, perfectly cast as Kirk, uh, Zachary Quinto as young Spock with Leonard Nimoy as Spock Prime, who has sort of come from one universe to another. Uh, and you've got an absolutely cracking bad guy, Nero, uh, played by the Australian actor Eric Banner. Now, with the various pieces of baggage that you normally have with 
uh, Star Trek, what Abrams did was he just kind of threw it all out the window and decided, this is what I'm going to do. Um, he he made Kirk this young, brash guy who uh, had obviously real problems because he had no sort of father figure because, well, it's in the opening scene of the film. He, he dies in the opening scene of the film, saving the Federation. So it's something that he's forced to uh, try and live up to and actually trying to uh, be better than. It's just a fantastic adventure film. It did cause a wee bit of grief among Star Trek film fans because it wasn't reverential enough to uh, the the original sort of idea behind Star Trek, which was always a lot of it was to do with using science and using dialogue rather than using action, whereas this film uses action. Um, it opened the film up to an awful lot of people who normally wouldn't go and see a Star Trek film, and that obviously angered a lot of people as well. Now, obviously, the film has led to two sequels, um, Into Darkness, which I thought was actually fairly decent. Um, and is a wee bit unfairly uh, maligned. And then there was uh, the third film, which has possibly killed off the, the franchise again, uh, based on the fact that it didn't do particularly well. There was a motorbike chase on it. How do you have a motorbike chase in a Star Trek film? I'm not sure, but there was. Um, so I'm not sure of the future of it, but uh, the first film really holds up, and it's sort of an example of just how well J.J. Abrams can actually take something and run with it and make it his own. I really enjoyed Star Trek Beyond, to be honest. <laughs> I thought it was great. I thought it was a lot of fun. The motorbike scene, yeah, it's ridiculous. But yeah. in, the, in the context of the movie, I think they pulled it off. It was the same director for Fast and the Furious, wasn't it? It was, yes. That's why as soon as I saw the motorbike, I thought there's going to be a motorbike chase here. <laughs> well, one review went and referred to it as just Fast and Furious in space, dot, dot, dot. Hmm, actually, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can tell by my silence, but I haven't seen um, any Star Trek ever, like not on TV or on at the cinema either. I, I, do you know why I felt intimidated to go and see the films? Because I hadn't seen any of the TV series and I thought it'll probably be above my understanding. Like maybe you need to have seen the show in order to understand uh, what's going on in the film. Like I know who the characters are and stuff like that. They're obviously very um, ingrained in our um, cultural canon, etc. But I just I've never seen anything? No, the 2009 film is a, a very easy way into it. It takes the characters and, as I say, it was very accessible for people who hadn't seen any of the films, basically because it explained who they all were, but not in a patronising way for people who knew, but, um, yeah, it was very easy to get a hold of, and let's face it, I mean, they're not exactly the most complex characters in the world anyway. My next choice is a really obvious one. It's um, Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Nah, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was going to make that joke earlier. <laughs> oh, wow, the silence there. Oh. Um, whatever you good podcast needs, silence. Um, no, I'm going to go for another really obvious one, just because I obviously have a, a thing for dark uh, cinema, and I am going to go for Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Coincidentally, I grew up with um, Val Kilmer and George Clooney as as Batman when I was a wee girl. I remember really looking forward to going and see them at the cinema. They were bright and they were colourful and they were a bit camp. You know, there was obviously the famous bat nipples debacle um, surrounding Clooney. And I have a lot of love for those films just 
out of pure nostalgia. But so the Dark Knight trilogy obviously has got to be one of the most successful superhero films, you know, Avengers aside, um, in recent years. Um, Christian Bale doing his best husky um, Batman voice, but also playing the, the Bruce Wayne character really well um, as well. There's the introduction of, you know, um, Michael Caine as Alfred, which just I don't know why, but every time I see him, I just want to cry. He's just such a lovely old man. And, you know, things worked really well. Like, the villains are, you know, I I think Liam Neeson is this in the first one and Killian Murphy. And then, obviously, you have the hugely iconic performance um, of Heath Ledger's The Joker. And then you get Tom Hardy breathing through some apparatus as, as Bane, which has become a wee bit parodied. But I think in terms of, again, showing that superhero movies can be a little bit dark and a little bit edgy and a little bit violent, I think Nolan knew exactly where he wanted to take the character over the course of the three films. And I think that's why they work really well, because they're very coherent. Um, Batman's going on a sort of specific journey to use the the phrase and I think that ironically I think they've done a lot of harm to Batman as a character because I think everyone will always be comparing them to the Christopher Nolan uh, trilogy and I think because now people expect that sort of you know shadowy gritty type of of superhero but I think you know as films go every single one of them there was an excitement around going to see them and they were just they were just different. So I mean, not even just different to all the camp and color that had gone before in the Batman franchise, but just different to any superhero movie that was out there. You know, Batman was very much vulnerable. Um, sorry, Bruce Wayne was very much vulnerable. There was no sort of you know glitter and and camp around it. It was very much real world problems and real world threats. Like the villains of the three separate pieces have this sort of terroristic quality about them. They're not you know men in leotards prancing around with with canes. There, it's a very tangible sort of universe that that trilogy has created. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The Dark Knight trilogy is an absolute outstanding series of cinema everything about it, even though the fact that Dark Knight Returns was, Dark Knight Rises, sorry, was a little bit um, kind of looked down upon on release and people like to mock Bane for his voice and things like that. Watch it back. It's a cracking film. The scene in the football stadium is outstanding. Yeah, the Absolutely. scenes when Tom Hardy's performance is utterly captivating and menacing. The fact he's wearing a mask the entire film. There's a scene at the beginning of um, he was on a plane mm-hmm. and he's saying it to the doctor, bad to bad to know what he told you. He's, I told him nothing. He just turns his head with a really menacing look and it's like <laughs> And that's what I mean, the villains and I hate to use that word because it does feel kind of it does put this idea in your head of, you know, some sort of caped crusader. Um, but the villains of the pieces in each of the films are all you know, they're not they're not guys in tights they're not guys that are you know walking around like swishing about and you know doing maniacal laughs and mustache twists to camera these are very tangibly unhinged real people who just have an axe to grind and I think that's where the success of that lies because not only is uh, Christian Bale an excellent um, Bruce Wayne and Batman the villains are so strong and so credible that you know it feels like a, a terror threat it's not you know it, it, it's there's it's lost all of the sort of camp and silliness of what had gone before. It's it's wonderful. You could do a whole podcast and he was Joker, and what you can imagine you see like Nolan dressing the character like that is it does stand out to their villains, the other bad guys, the gangsters. And that he's supposed to look different. 
It's mm-hmm. supposed to look more theatrical. He's not supposed to be a kind of guy that can just see in the, in the paper and go, oh, there's a joker, it's up to his tricks again. Yeah. And you've got like um, Raz Al Ghul and Batman Begins, played by Liam Neeson, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know, I was wary that I said that earlier on, and I was like, oh, and Killian Murphy's on there as well. And <laughs> you've got this really kind of like maniacal, grandiose comic book supervillain scheme, but how he applies it to Christopher Nolan's world. It's plausible. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that every everyone is a very credible character, and you know Heath Ledger's Joker obviously is you know everyone refers to it. But interestingly, I am really keen to see where Joaquin Phoenix takes the character because I don't think anyone quite does unhinged like him. <laughs> I cannot wait for that. I'm so looking forward to it. Sammy, have you got a last choice for us? I do indeed, and I'm going to go with Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Oh yeah, that was on my short list too. I love that film. Yeah. A remake of the Asian film Infernal Affairs. That was actually a trilogy of movies that was taken to the best bits of all three movies and created just one big linear plot for The Departed. What a cast. Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Mark Wahlberg, Jack Nicholson. It's just... Let's not forget Ray Winston. Ray Winston, yeah. You know, how can you forget him? And Alec Baldwin for that matter. <laughs> Sorry, anytime anyone says Alec Baldwin, I also think of Team America World Police. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's, there's not a bad performance really in that movie. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. It's very gritty. It's grim. It's got that kind of dark humour to it. It's totally vintage Scorsese, isn't it? It's everything you want from one of his gangster flicks, isn't it? It's. It, it, again, it's one of those films that kept me guessing right up until the end, which I really enjoyed as well. And obviously, I won't spoil the end, and I know it's been out for years, but I won't. Yeah, it's an excellent choice. I love that film. I actually prefer the, the, the original. I prefer, I prefer Infernal Affairs. And I think it's been one of those kind of things. It depends on what you've seen first. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many kind of twists and turns to it, and the plots are more or less the same. If you have seen The Departed, I would, and you haven't seen Infernal Affairs, the three of them are absolutely worth watching. The first one, first and final affairs film, kind of mirrors the departed more. Then the second one is a prequel, which is kind of at the beginning of the departed. Mm-hmm. And the third one's kind of the aftermath of everything. And it's, yeah, great trilogy of movies. Outstanding remake. The final of Scorsese's first Oscar, I believe, as well. Really? Right, yeah. Yes, it is, yeah. Oh, I thought but, you'd have loads of them at home. It's kind of that joking, although I've not seen the film, I've seen the trailer for Jack and Jill, Adam Sandler. And Al Pacino's in it. Complain himself. And the scene when she knocks over the Oscar mm-hmm. and breaks it and goes, Oh, you must have loads of these lying about. And he goes, Yeah, you'd think, but no. <laughs> He's going to keep making piss like that, then <laughs> it will continue to be the only one. What happened to Al Pacino? I mean, Devil's Advocate is one of my favourite films of all time, and obviously he's tremendous in The Godfather and Scarface. He's in Dunkin' Donuts adverts just now. Oh, so he is. Pays the bills. So we asked him, we asked you on social media about your favourite remakes and reboots and the like. Well, kind of with Facebook first. From David Brogan, we have remakes which are great. Would be Ocean's Eleven, Cape Fear, War of the Worlds, and The Departed. We also have Graham Campbell saying The Force Awakens, but I think he may be having a wee bit of a <laughs> joke there. I don't know if they go on Twitter down check, but I don't know, my account's been suspended or Twitter's down. Oh, I think it's you. You've been cancelled. 
they finally caught up with you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I can, maybe I can see some of them comments. I do apologise if I've not read your comments out. It's not my fault what I was doing, people. <laughs> but we have from Ross Nelson at Real Ross Nelson Transformers. Michael Bay's Transformers, which I suppose is a reboot of the cartoon classic. That's yeah, an interesting suppose. choice. Scottish Films at Scottish Films on Twitter said Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, that was on my short list, but I chickened out of talking about it. Uh, MT, uh, MT Lansley says the James Mangold directed the 2007 remake of 310 Ayuma. Again, uh, I didn't know that it was a remake. I have it recorded in my box. I've still watched it. At EHDM Jaiju said The Departed. Morag at WeCID said Annie 2014 was much better than the first one. What? Yeah. <laughs> we also have Dave Muller saying the Nolan Batman movies and Battlestar Galactica. At Bob Steele 55, off the top of his head, Philip Kaufman's 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Cronenberg's The Fly and John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, Ooh, really good, really good yeah. choices. Yeah. Yep. yeah. However, I'm going to really object to the Annie one. I mean, I hate the original because it's just screeching <laughs> kids. But the Jamie Foxx Cameron Diaz remake, for shame. <laughs> CJ Novo, CJ Novo 992 also said The Parted and the new Halloween movie, which I, 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 I'm, I'm going to allow. I'm going to allow yeah. because although it's a sequel, it does reboot the franchise in a way. It does recreate the story in a way by ignoring films 2 to 107. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm not rejecting its uh, status as a reboot. It just didn't do anything for me as a film. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a, it's a good movie to see with an audience. Yeah, it's also the second time they've done that whole thing with the, let's just ignore the previous films. Halloween H2O was a direct sequel to Halloween 2 and ignored 3 to 5, or sorry, 3 to 6. And then they went one further with the new Halloween and went, yeah, this is a direct sequel to the first one. <laughs> All that stuff in between, including the idea of them being brother and sister. Nah, it's not happening. It's almost like we'd like to apologise for the disturbance to your cinematic viewing and please ignore all films that you saw between the periods <laughs> of. <laughs> and at Lewis Finley, it has the new Suspiria. That's actually a pretty good show, yeah. Yeah, yep. that was excellent as well. Yeah. Excellent. And last but not least, we have Stuart at Out After Dark 216. He also says Mad Max, but Halloween 2008, which is very, very controversial. He also thinks uh, the original Aquaman is much better, though. And that's a wee in-joke for any Entourage fans out there. <laughs> I, t- I take exception to the Mad Max one as well. I don't think it is a, a reboot. I think it's more of a sequel than a... Reimagining? No. Yeah, I, I would say reimagining, actually, as opposed to yeah, reboot. Interesting that you thought Halloween was okay, but you're not too cool with Mad Max. Well, no, just because Mad Max... If you if you reboot it, then you you have to take it back to the beginning. Whereas they didn't hear the the world was already set up. He was already part of that uh, a follow on from Thunderdome, if you oh, like. It's in our podcast in itself. Probably bonus <laughs> podcast featuring me singing "We Don't Need Another Hero" by Tina Turner. Yeah, all on your own podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you look really pretty. Therefore, I have value. No, no, that's not what I meant at all. I was just... I'm messing with you. 
Yeah, that's us finished when it comes to reboots, remakes, reimaginings, replays, whatever else you want to just put the word dream in front of. Because you can't say the word remake if people turn their nose up at it, even though these films still make a fortune. There's been some controversy on Twitter in the last week or two regarding a new film about Robert the Bruce. Yep. I haven't seen it, to be fair. I would have went to see it had it been on Cine World. Which leads me on to the, the controversy of the movie and that Cineworld wasn't showing it. The lead actor took to social media to vent his frustration, which in turn created something of a backlash against <laughs> cinema chains that weren't showing it. And I don't really know what to say about this, either than a fair play to the actor for drumming up interest in this low-budget, independent movie that would have probably flown under the radar. But at the same time, once you open Pandora's box, there ain't no closing it. Yeah, I mean, I think there must be hundreds and thousands of films that are vying for release every week. Um, I don't think that Angus McFadden and the Robert the Bruce film have any more entitlement to screen space than any of the rest of those films. And interestingly, the sort of campaign or whatever you want to call it that he's running on Twitter just now is very caught up in a Scottish political uh, dialogue just now which again sort of alienates 55% of your uh, audience potentially Um, and I just I don't know is the world crying out for a Robert the Bruce film like we obviously had Outlaw King on Netflix which was okay Chris Pine had a, a good Scottish accent in it Robert the, the the actual Robert the Bruce character that Angus McFadden portrays in Braveheart was never like I didn't think he was sympathetic enough or whatever he was seen as sort of weak and weedy and sort of traitorous compared to the you know heroic Mel Gibson rendering of William Wallace I just I get that he's an actor trying to push a film that he's involved in but to me there's a sort of fine line between trying to drum up support and this weird sense of entitlement that you should be in major cinema chain screens just because it's a film that you're passionate about. I'm sure there's lots of directors that feel the same way about their work. The problem I have with all of this is the fact that it is actually being shown in Cineworld cinemas. If you actually look at the listings, it is being shown in some of the cinemas. Yeah, and Maybe I think... I think two sh- Sorry, Nicole. No, I was just going to say, I think View Cinemas have picked it up as well, so it's not not in cinemas. Yeah. Um, originally, it, was, it looks as if it was punted to potential audiences as a follow-up to Braveheart, because Angus McFadden's been saying mm-hmm. that, uh, well, the film's been 12 years in the making. I, I wrote this a long time ago and all that sort of stuff. And when that didn't drum up sufficient interest, he's gone on to the, uh, the well, it's an anti-Scottish thing with Cineworld. And like you say, Mary, uh, there are upwards of uh, 15, 16 films that are released every week. Now, if you think about it this time of year, uh, are Cineworld going to flood their screens with a Robert the Bruce film, which uh, they're not really going to get that many people into? Can you imagine the, the excitement in the Palmer House if you said, right, everybody, we're, we're going to see the Robert the Bruce film today. It's going to be a grand day out. By the way, Toy Story's also on as well in <laughs> Spider-Man. But you, you don't want to go and see them. You want to go and see a man talking about a spider. <laughs> and it's not even a spider that talks or does anything. He doesn't attack anybody. It, 
it just seemed to, it, it, because it failed on that, as you say, he used the whole Scottish tack, you know, uh, even in his last sort of tweets where he was saying, you know, I, I'm not even getting a response back from my London agents now, you know, what's going on here? And you're thinking... So what, the subtext of that is that the it's an anti-Scottish yeah. agenda, right? Okay, cool. Yes, aye. But I don't think he realises the sort of position that he's in. He's actually been lucky enough to be in a film that was actually made. They managed to get funding together. They got a film out there. And now he's having a wee moan because he doesn't think that enough people are getting to see it. Now, I, I would have more sympathy for the film if it was if it had actually been shot in Scotland. The film, <laughs> <laughs> the film was shot in Montana yeah. for, and I can- for economic reasons. So they say. But if you think, I mean... All the stuff that's been going on with the Scottish film industry over the last couple of years. I mean, look who they've managed to attract. Yep. You've had, you've had Brad Pitt. You've had the Wachowskis. You've had Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've had the Fast and Furious franchise all coming to Scotland and filming there because of the tax breaks. Now, that would have made a better story. He's been very quiet about that, the fact that it wasn't even shot in the damn country. Mm. Part of me thinks it's almost because the Robert the Bruce character wasn't as portrayed as favourably in, in Braveheart that maybe this is his chance to sort of rewrite that role and sort of you know redeem himself or whatever um, but if you are feeling depressed that you haven't had the chance to see the, the Robert the Bruce movie what you should do is go on to uh, Angus McFadden's IMDB biography which is in no way written by Angus McFadden It might be his mum that wrote it <laughs> The thing is maybe you're saying like um, people, people crying out for Robert the Bruce film no man, I'm a big fan of Braveheart. I think it's a cracking film for what it is. I did take a lot of umbrage to how the character was portrayed. You know, but it's a film. At the end of the day, that's fine. But I always wanted to see it up at the Bruce film. I did. I saw the Outlaw King. It was about a year ago. Yeah, it was on Netflix. anything else. Like I said, I first was on Cineworld and I had some time. I jumped in to see it. I don't know if I want to see it now. I can't even put off it. Yeah, I feel that's the thing, that maybe if cinemas were going to now show it, I think if you've seen this sort of, as I say, it's become wrapped up in sort of Scottish political dialogue. I think if you'd maybe seen that on social media, you'd be like, oh, well, I don't really want to give my money to that now. And you've got people who they voted no, they voted, people who voted yes, have this big, massive argument where Angus is either sitting and actually genuinely leaves Robert the Bruce, or most likely is laughing. Yeah. I mean, if you read some of his tweets, you would genuinely think that the independence uh, of Scotland does, in fact, rest with Angus McFadden. He's uh, he's very passionate about that, and he's uh, he's been tweeting about it recently. You know, whatever your views on independence are, I think if it was a genuinely just an enjoyable historical film about Scotland that was, you know, getting the coverage, as you say, I'd probably just go in and see it. But now it's become this, you know, big brouhaha, and it it's kind of laughable in, in some space but as, as I said I, I think the issue for me is that for there seems to be a sense of entitlement this film should be shown because it's Scottish and it should be shown in Scottish cinemas and um, when there are so many filmmakers out there in Scotland and beyond who are really struggling to get their work noticed. I mean The Hateful Eight wasn't shown in Cineworld I think there were more production reasons but either way Quentin Tarantino didn't have a film shown in Cineworld it happens yeah, you know, but Outlaw King was straight to Netflix. Yep, I don't mean that derogatory because Netflix is obviously a big thing these days. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a big, massive cinema release. No, and I've seen a lot of people saying, "Oh, maybe they should just release that Netflix." Like, 
it's just an easy thing to do. Netflix is <laughs> a multi-billion dollar production, you know, who aren't just going to buy stuff just because they've got space for it. No. <laughs> and it's and equally... people arguing. They don't have the slightest inkling to how cinema even works. You know, as you're saying, John, I should show the film. Well, mm. in, in place of what? Yeah. You know, yeah. do, do we take an Avengers screen off that we know we're still going to sell out? Or do we take a Toy Story 4 screen off that we know we're definitely going to sell out for a, a film that might fill half a cinema? And I listen, I get that that must be soul-destroying if you're a filmmaker and you're desperate for people to see your film. And, you know, you are competing against... It's a real sort of David and Goliath type of situation. And you feel like you're losing out to the, the big summer blockbusters. But, you know, ultimately, that that is the way the... The machine works, as it were, and sometimes you know you're going to be on the the receiving end of some of some good reviews and some good press, and other times you're you're going to struggle. And I think this is maybe one that he has to just go, okay, it's been shown what it is, and let me just accept that. I mean, the yep. film has had zero marketing from what I can see. It's had a lot of publicity for the wrong reasons, and people say there's no such thing as bad publicity. I disagree. I'd ask uh, Liam Neeson and Kevin Spacey that one. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. we're really going for cancelled this week. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, you've got to look and say that Cineworld are a business. Yeah, they want, They're going to make money, no matter what. And they've, as you said, Mary, they've ignored plenty of other Scottish films that have been out there over the last couple of years without any sort of controversy whatsoever. I mean, you've only got to look at that film Beats from uh, the beginning of this year, which was about the, uh, the rave scene. And I think it was Bathgate in the mid eighties. That got pretty much zero coverage in uh, most of the major chains, and nobody batted an eyelid about that. But obviously, uh, there wasn't a guy wielding a sword yeah, <laughs> wearing chainmail. Yeah, I mean, no. I've not even seen a trailer. Like, there's been nothing. No, I've seen nothing no. at all, and that's not part of some kind of global Zionist conspiracy. And I use the Zionist one because people actually did claim that Israel was behind it as well at one point. I'm just like, where does this end? It's a movie. I need I need everyone to take off their tinfoil hats and to go and expose themselves to some direct sunlight. Like I I don't even know where this comes from. Too many hours on Reddit, perhaps. This is why we have one on labels on bleach. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if anybody's seen Robert the Bruce movie, please get in contact with us with your honest opinion on it. We have nothing against the film, as we said. We'd happily watch. I quite like uh, Robert the Bruce, as I said. I'll happily watch the film, but. Honestly, guys, chill. Just chill. Well, lads, it has been lovely to be back with you. I really missed uh, recording our your last episode and I felt a slight pang of jealousy when you were discussing ideas in the Facebook chat without me. It's been great to be back and to um, flood everyone's earwaves with my uh, annoying 12-year-old boy voice. Yeah, we were totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, this is what I've missed—the perennial abuse. <laughs> I am going to wrap it up for just now, unless anybody has anything else they want to say. I think that's been a very successful podcast. Thanks everybody for your comments. Bye, guys. Bye. And till next time. Also, if you want to follow us, not on social media, as usual: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Movie Scramble. If there's anything you'd like us to cover in the future, whether it be a certain film coming out, a classic movie, any particular themes, or just something you want to plug, get in touch. Thank you.
everywhere I go, I see his face. I just really miss him. Yeah, I miss him too. I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know that you were going to be here after he was gone. You going to be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. Oh. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work. Because I am going on vacation.